You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Okay, my guest on today's episode of Talking Taiwan is Michael Turton. Michael is a political commentator and a Taipei Times columnist. I have him on the episode today to talk about why China has banned pineapples from Taiwan. So let's talk about why China's banned pineapples from Taiwan. What happened earlier this week or a week ago? Oh dear, there's some drilling in the background over yeah, I can here. Hear that. <laughs> okay. All right. It sounds it's, like a whale, actually. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, this is wonderful. Okay, well, let's deal with it. Well, a week ago, that was Friday, February 26th. That's when Beijing announced that it was going to be ban all imports of Taiwanese pa- pineapples since they had harmful organisms. Probably democracy <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and Taiwan identity associated with them, but I think it was a very typical example of the way uh, China will open a market, and you've seen this with other things like orchids and groupers and, and other things. They would open a market and invite Taiwanese to ship their stuff in or to participate in it or you know come over and do stuff, and then they'll steal whatever they wanted to be stealing from that particular market. Uh, Orchid growing technologies, or you know, varieties of plants, and over in uh, Xiamen, there's an entire industrial district which is devoted basically to stealing agricultural products from Taiwan. And uh, this is, I think, is a case of this because some of the news people reported it, the the focus here has been on whoa, everyone's reacting so wonderfully, but uh, one or two of the news platforms announced that uh, reported, sorry, that uh, the Chinese had been had offered this variety. In other words, basically, they've stolen it from the Taiwanese. They got what they wanted, and now they're shutting down that market and letting their own uh, people produce those pineapples, oh. which originally came over from China via the Portuguese years ago, right? Mm-hmm. 300 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, 400 years ago. Right. I'm well. getting old. This math stuff is defeating me. <laughs> <laughs> One of the responses to this pineapple issue that the government uh, put out was to call for better patenting protection for Taiwan varieties. Mm. So the so they had created these markets, and it's an artificial market. It, it doesn't really exist. And uh, it took, everyone says, 90% of our exports, which was 53 or 54 million U.S. bucks. In 2020, it was 53.9 million, right? So you've got a market that's actually not that big in a in a you know, six or whatever, 700 billion economy that Taiwan has now, mm-hmm. and which is doing very well. And most of all, almost all of our pineapple exports are, uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. almost all of our pineapple production is consumed at home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, it was simple for local pineapple buyers to increase their consumption a little and sop up this excess production and and say, here, we're striking back at China by eating extra pineapples. And in, in a lot of these um, affairs, everything from Chinese threats to Taiwan to Chinese you know, interactions with our, with our exporters, in all of these affairs, China has to demonstrate to its domestic audiences that its actions are legitimate. It's, legitimacy is always a problem that authoritarian parties have. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're an authoritarian government, your people don't like you. And so everything you have to put a lot of effort into explaining what you do so the public will accept it. That's why they pass these laws, you know, that they can that that people that that states or areas that are leaving China have to be attacked. Right? So they can present this to their own people as legal or <laughs> the Coast Guard now has the law to shoot at people. 
who might be in disputed waters. Well, they always could have shot at ships in disputed waters. They didn't need a law to do that. The law is something that they present to their own people. Look, we're taking legitimate legal action here. Mm-hmm. And so what they're, what they're doing with the pest thing is the same thing. Here, this is legit. We're shutting down these because we found pests. But mm-hmm. everyone knows that that's not the case. This is how they always operate. Right. And so what they had done, what a couple of the media organs had said, was that they had produced, they had, they had started growing the variety that they were importing from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't need it. They, they had, what they had done is they had taken what they wanted, and once they had it, they shut down that market because mm-hmm. it only existed to get mm-hmm. that thing. Mm-hmm. That's how China works. Is there any scientific proof of these like harmful critters or things that they stare no, in the pineapple? No, pineapples? that was... That was the same nonsense that they've done to other countries, Australia, Japan. You know, they freeze some kind of import by saying it's unhealthy. This this way they can represent the freeze to their own people as something that's good, right? Mm-hmm, right. So, and and there's nothing that, uh, since, they don't, since it's not evidence-based, you can't present any evidence that's going to change their minds. Mm-hmm. It's It's just... After so many years of watching China do things like this, I've I've started to come to the conclusion that the only cure for the China problem is a is a complete ban on all trade with China by all mm-hmm. countries. Mm-hmm. It's it's very depressing to see this. Yeah, and China accounts for over ninety percent of the pineapples exported from Taiwan. So how could this hurt Taiwan? Uh, it really can't. The actual amount of pineapple that goes to China isn't much. It's fifty three million U S dollars, right? Mm-hmm. So Mm, it takes all of our exports, but the vast majority of pineapple that we produce stays in Taiwan. So, like there was a recent um, there was a recent piece on how Japan, in response for our earthquake help that we'd given to them years ago, mm-hmm. I think in 2011 or whatever, that mm-hmm. uh, they decided to buy 6,000 tons of pineapples. Wow. Various groups in Japan had done that, mm-hmm. but. If you read some of the other news reports, you'll soon see that 14 tea shops in Taiwan had purchased 4,500 tons of pineapples. In other words, Mm -hmm. 6,000 tons of pineapples is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in in the scheme of things, this is a very tiny market, and most of the pineapples are used in Taiwan. But the important thing about it, one of the important things about it was the way that it became a kind of Taiwanese identity thing to suddenly do pineapples, right? Before we started this interview, we were talk- you had been talking about identity and consumptionism. Do you want to make a comment about that? Yeah, I think one of the things for me, because uh, I used to teach a, a course in, in consumption and you know mass consumption and, uh, and identity and marketing. And one of the things for me looking at this pineapple thing is, uh, is how you've you find this Taiwan. The Taiwan consumer is a globalized consumer, right? And and consumers in modern consumption societies build identities by consuming. And so here we are consuming pineapples and building our Taiwan identity, mm-hmm. right? And this is a this is something that you see a lot uh, in, through Taiwan. And the pineapple industry has actually exploited this before. In uh, and remember in the SARS epidemic, were you here at that time? I think you yes, might have been. Yes, I was. I met you around that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And do you remember how their story went around? That uh, consuming pineapples was a preventive against SARS. <laughs> I don't actually, really. Well, I remember that because this, because of this thing, I remembered. Like, where have I seen this before? The pineapple <laughs> industry mobilizing consumers to sell stuff, right? <laughs> it's not an identity thing, but but that's one of the things that struck me. But when you look at this pattern, it goes all the way back to the like the late '80s and the early '90s when when Binglong was the thing. Right. Yeah. If you wanted to be Taiwanese, you had to try Binglong. Right. Binglong. Right. That was the Taiwanese thing. And these these things 
happen again and again with you know the cycling thing. You consume cycling goods and you demonstrate your Taiwan oh, identity, yeah, yeah. right? There's always a consumption angle to mm. this identity mm. building now that we're yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is one of the ways that I was when I looked at that, I was thinking about this. Yeah, so. yeah and the belong for people don't know that's the beetle nut. Yeah, I mean, and pineapple is it is a symbol of Taiwan. Yeah. Sure, it goes back uh, goes back 300 years here, and then. Um, during the like the early part of the 20th century, the Japanese set up pineapple canning here, and it became huge. Mm-hmm. I think a third of all the factory women who were employed in Taiwan at that time were employed in oh, pineapple really? canning. Hmm. Yeah, and then, and then you know it went through all these changes, and then again in 1960 it was enormous. Just before we started the uh, electronics exports, when they were mm-hmm. still doing import substitution, mm-hmm. pineapples, mushrooms, bananas, a few other things mm-hmm. were being exported. Mm-hmm. So. You know, pineapples have this deep, deep history in Taiwan. And they've always been here as long as the Chinese settlers have been here. So it's kind of interesting to see how they've they've become used in this instance to build the Taiwan identity. Mm-hmm. In, response, in response, of course, to a Chinese act, mm-hmm. right? A lot of Taiwanese identity is built in response to something that the Chinese did. Mm. Yeah. So and that's, you know, the, 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 the sunflowers who, who were... A manifestation of the Taiwan, Taiwan, the growing new Taiwanese identity, and I think we'll talk about that. Uh, that's the kind of thing that we um, that we see a lot. And so, how does this impact Taiwan's farmers? So then, you're really saying that's really isn't that huge an impact, then, fortunately. No, no, because the the market was artificial to start, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, China created it mm-hmm. so that it could get this thing, mm. and the the impact will be the loss of that market, which never really existed anyway, right? It was just something that China invented to, to get mm-hmm. pineapple varieties or technologies mm-hmm. from our from mm-hmm. Taiwan. So the farmers have plenty of land and they will produce something else that people want. Right. Yeah. But Taiwan should be aware of this. I mean, like you said, this happened before. How could they let this happen? They they know that the Chinese will try to steal their technology or their methods as they did with the pineapples. How could they have not uh, protected themselves from this? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard for me to, you know, I was out last, I was a couple of weeks ago, I was out on the East coast and, uh, I, I spent some time talking to pineapple farmers and for them it's, um, they have to plan and they have to sell. Yeah. So if there's a market, it, they have to grab it. Even, even if it's a market that's not going to exist for very long. Right. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're a large grower, because mm-hmm. you've got. Uh, for example, a small grower, like the, one of the guys I talked to last week, he has a very small farm, mm-hmm. and he grows a few pineapples, and they make him probably 250,000 NT a year, mm-hmm. which is a tiny amount, mm-hmm. right? And uh, But he can go through, because he's a small farmer, he can go through there, he can pick out the pineapples when they're ready. But the big farmers have to just you know, sell all those pineapples at once. And for them, putting together everything they need in the transportation, the labor, the pineapples ripening, everything has to happen. And so these markets have to be grabbed. Mm-hmm. And so there's who's going to say in the Taiwan government or in the pineapple exporting community or in the Council of Agriculture or whatever, no one's going to say, I'm sorry, you cannot sell these pineapples to this person who mm-hmm. wants to buy them. Mm-hmm. So that's how we get in these situations. Yeah. And the public responded and they bought up all the, the equivalent of the, of the exports. Mm. 
So some other farmers had to give up their fruit sales, but <laughs> it's just built into the way the system works. Can we talk about some of the things that have happened like, that you alluded to that happened in the past, like that um, China banning other exports from Taiwan? Offhand, I can't think of anything they banned from Taiwan. They, they oh, want to okay. do the opposite. They, they want us to send send oh, them our stuff mm-hmm. so they can steal it, right? Right. So, I mean... Uh, the 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 problem isn't banning; it's theft. And okay. Yeah, that's happened. Of course, everyone who deals with China has to has to yeah. has to under, undergo this. It has to face this problem. Right. So the the other problem that you have is like with um you have, you is like groupers, for example, where the money isn't earned in Taiwan. It's the the grouper marketers use their channel power to mm-hmm. suppress the earnings here, mm-hmm. and then they sell them for high prices in China. But they keep that. Uh, they keep what they make. They don't pass it back to the farmers here. Oh, can you explain that a little bit more for my listeners? Well, here we're growing grouper and we're selling it in yep. China, right? Mm-hmm. For a while, there's a big demand, and for and sometimes prices spike. Mm-hmm. And uh, but most of the time, what happens is you send the groupers to someone who sends them to China, and they process them somehow. Uh-huh. So they put in the value added. Like for example, they'll package the groupers with you know, sauces for eating the groupers mm-hmm. or they'll package the groupers with things that you can cook them with right. or they'll, pa- they'll cut them up in certain ways, right? So they, so they add, they do that value-added processing somewhere else and those, those marketers use their channel power to, right. to, and they keep that money. Yeah. Right, right. So that's always been a, that's been a problem across several industries as I recall, but now I can't think of the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> but this keeps coming up with all kinds of uh, – all of our exports to China face these these two issues. One is that they're artificial. And China actually had some buying programs. If you might recall, uh, during the election in 2016, I think they had some people over here – you know, telling farmers that they would, that they were going to buy all this stuff, and of course, I made fun of that on the blog. And there were these sort of hopeful newspaper articles that you saw coming out of U.S. newspapers. Oh, the Chinese are turning the South blue, right? Supporting the KMT. That would that would be blue, the blue side in Taiwan's politics. And of course, the only th- the reason the farmers are turning blue is holding their breath, waiting for the money to actually arrive. So. A lot of these markets, um, they come and go. They're responding to some political issue. Mm-hmm. And farmers have to grab them while they're there. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't have any – the good thing is because China does this and everyone knows it, the good thing is there's very little political effect, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the, the political effect is among – the tourism, of course, is the big one where that China cut off. Right. So we had floods. We had millions of tourists every year from China. And then suddenly, boom, they shut it down. And all of the people who were affected by that were people who are supporting China. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of this, when you build these um, systems, this infrastructure, right, for getting things out of Taiwan to China, the people who are involved in that, the tourist bus drivers, the restaurants, all these things, you know, a lot of them are China supporting. Uh, mm. Ian Rowan right. might know. Do you know Ian? No. He's, he's written on this. He embedded himself in Chinese tour groups in Taiwan, right? And he traveled around. He, he was, did an anthropological style uh, study of this. And he traveled around with these tour groups. And again and again, when they stop somewhere, uh, like a rest stop or a restaurant or a jewelry store or mm-hmm. whatever, souvenir yeah. shop, the shop owners and staff were all blue. Mm-hmm. They were all – so the right. Chinese were getting this weird perception of Taiwan. Wow, everyone we encounter is so blue. Mm-hmm. And 
the money was all going to the blues. So when they killed tourism, they shot their own allies. Right, right. right. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's why you didn't hear you you heard specific complaints from specific groups like bus drivers. Uh-huh. But the effect was negative for the people who support China. And I suspect that's what's going to happen here because all these people who had organized to form channels to send pineapples to Taiwan and who might have been thinking about maybe – or to China, sorry. And who might have been thinking about supporting China are now going to you know, do something else mm-hmm. and nothing supporting China. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. This is really nothing new. I mean there have been other trade disputes or other grabs of technology or know-how from China, right? Right. Uh, Orkins were a big one. Um, and uh, there was some good reporting on that about a decade ago, how Taiwan had lost a lot of orchid technology mm-hmm. to, to China. Mm-hmm. They don't always do it. You saw the – I'm sure you saw a couple of weeks ago. Was that last week? or I can't remember. But the, one of the big Chinese firms that had been attempted to, attempting to get semiconductors going had failed. So not all of these technological theft attempts succeed, thankfully, or they would have everything. Interesting. And so a lot of people um, outside of Taiwan, especially um, the diaspora, are like thinking, oh, what can we do to help the pineapple trade and all that? And people are like, I want to buy Taiwan pineapple now. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Um, What what can we do about this uh, for those of us outside of Taiwan? For those of you outside of Taiwan, what you should be doing is what we've always done, only more of it. Give money to candidates that support Taiwan. Call for legislation on Chinese issues and on Taiwanese issues that helps Taiwan, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Buying pineapples is nice. It feels good. But it's what we need. We're in this for the long haul, right? I mean, I've always said now for 30 years that I've been writing on Taiwan that Taiwan is the horse that has to be taught to sing. Do you remember that famous uh, – the famous story, I think it goes back to Herodotus, right? He talks about the Persian king who bring who the thief goes before the king and the king says, I'm going to execute you. And the thief says, wait, give me a year, I'll teach your horse to sing. <laughs> and the, and later on, you know, the, the dudes in prison are asking him, because the king says, yeah, okay. And then, then the dudes in prison ask him, why'd you do that? And he said, well, look, anything could happen. The king could die, he could be deposed, <laughs> or the horse could learn to sing. So... <laughs> That's where Taiwan is, right? We're the horse. <laughs> we're, we're hoping that uh, maybe we can sing or China will give up. <laughs> and that's the attitude we have to have. We're, we're, the attitude that we have to keep um, fostering amongst our own supporters and people and, and among new people who become interested in this is that we, we need to work together to, to – whenever some pro-Taiwan legislation comes out, no matter how silly it might seem, mm-hmm. right – we need to deal with if there's errors or mistakes, we do that privately. We email them and say, hey, look, this mm-hmm. is wrong. Can you mm-hmm. change that? This mm-hmm. language is bad or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And publicly, we need to say, hey, thank you for this. Right. And we need to give them warm fuzzies publicly because they're, the people that produce these documents are human beings. And so they want that positive feedback, so they'll keep doing it. So that's what we need to be. We need to buy pineapples, and we also need to be singing horses, <laughs> supporting Taiwan, and yeah, <laughs> we need to be telling that horse sing or else. <laughs> Interesting tactic. Thanks for sharing that. We just we just keep playing for time, playing for time, because yeah. time is on our side. Yeah, and thinking about all these trade disputes, um, think makes me think back to um, the sunflower movement, which the anniversary is coming up soon. Right when yeah. they occupied the legislature over the trade treaty with China. Yeah, can we talk a little bit about that to give my listeners some context? I don't, I don't know how many people really know what was behind that movement. Well, the the first treaty that we signed was in was ECFA, 
the economic framework agreement, which that was a cross trade agreement that opened up certain areas to trade and actually started causing this problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because then there were certain areas which immediately we started exporting in which immediately China was collecting that technology. And that there was an older problem than that once uh, Taiwanese began moving back, moving in droves to China in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Ma Ying-jeou became president and mm-hmm. one of his goals was to sign a treaty because the problem that China was having was that it was running a massive trade deficit with Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the numbers, what that treaty did was it increased Chinese imports to Taiwan. Its function was to was to reduce that trade deficit and, and help China. Mm-hmm. And so that's what it did. And then after that agreement, uh, Ma proposed another agreement, and this was a services pact. And the services pact, because a lot of people don't really appreciate, you think of Taiwan as a thing that makes as a as a nation that makes things, right? Mm-hmm. Semiconductors, tennis rackets, shoes, bicycles. computers, whatever. Yeah, bicycles. We make stuff. That's what we do here. But actually, most of this economy is services, just like any modern economy. Uh-huh. And so when the service pact was, well, you know, to allow China to, to participate in services, when that came in, that was huge because suddenly all these ordinary people, right, all over uh, could see that there would be Chinese, maybe they would, you know, who really knows, right? Maybe they would come over and mm-hmm. set up things like haircutting shops, mm-hmm. right? And little pork soup stands and all the stuff that you see mm-hmm. around. And, of course, there's a lot of complicated politics within the then ruling party, the Kuomintang, the KMT, uh, whose president, Ma Ying-jeou, was was fighting with the then speaker of the legislature, Huang Mm -hmm. Jinping. Mm -hmm. So the two of them were at loggerheads. And then uh, along came this pact. Since since it had no support, the the services pact had no support. Yeah, sorry Mm -hmm. about that. The... The KMT decided to attempt to pass it by rigmarole in the legislature. Mm-hmm. And outside, of course, people have been protesting against this pact for a while. And there was a large gathering of, of young people out there because they could see that their future was going to be heavily impacted by this. Right. One of them testified later, for example, uh, at the trial that some of these guys had for occupying the legislature. One of them testified the, that the services pact would have meant that the Taiwan tourism industry came under control of China, essentially. Mm. That's what would have happened. Mm-hmm. And then uh, China had already been running what they call dollar tours. You know that, right? They're super cheap. And then nothing comes back to the locals. That's how the Chinese had done everything any, everywhere in, in Asia. And they were trying to do that in Taiwan. Uh, AP had a piece many years ago on those tours where they showed that uh, if you went to a souvenir shop, say in Hualien, right, on your tour, right. you were Chinese and you paid with a credit card, the transaction took place in Hong Kong. Oh, so nothing came back to Taiwan. Everything mm. stayed in Hong Kong because wow. they, they they done it, did it digitally. So the uh-huh. actual transaction was transacted outside oh. of Taiwan, even though the guy standing in Taiwan, mm-hmm. right, using Taiwan roads, drinking mm. Taiwan water, blah, blah blah blah. So the Chinese were going to extend these practices even more deeply into the tourism industry. Oh, wow. and yeah. So that was part of it. And then uh, the, the legislature, the, the, uh, I can't remember exactly what his position was, but the committee leader, as I, I recall, 
he had simply declared that a vote had been taken and the treaty passed, even though nothing had been done. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I think someone involved, I think it was him, ran off to the bathroom with the microphone so no one could do anything. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, and that. <laughs> I mean, literally, this is the legislature, yeah. right? This is the kind of shenanigans that go on here. They're, they're often amusing, but, you know, deeply serious things are going on. A nation is being governed this way, right? Yeah. So they, I can't remember, it was the DPP that ran off there to stop it or the KMT that ran off there to stop it. But it, it, but both sides do this kind of thing, and they, and that's the way it's set up. The the legislative caucus system here is a, there's a wonderful piece on it. J. Michael Cole's old... Uh, Taiwan Sentinel. You know, it became Taiwan Sentinel. And then before that was Thinking Taiwan. There's a piece on the Legislative Caucus. So this piece on the Legislative Caucus argues that uh, one of the – it explains how the caucus system is set up in the legislature to slow things down, mm-hmm. right? One of the, the one of the big, deep problems that Taiwan has is that its constitution was never intended to run a democratic country. It was just supposed to be the candy coating over an authoritarian state. And so in the battled uh, martial law days, the KMD got things done because the president was also the head of the party. And so he could send orders down through the party system to get things done, right? But now, you know, one of the really underappreciated things about the democratic transition here is that it has transitioned the government structure itself. It it has given – it has breathed democratic life into this this hokey constitution that we have. It's, and it's actually been a revolution, a very quiet and in many ways very successful revolution, right? Because many of the government bodies in Taiwan, for all that we complain about them, they do meaningful, important, useful work. Mm-hmm. So anyway, getting back to the <laughs> sunflower, <laughs> the, the young people who were outside the legislature then occupied it. And because of this spat between the speaker of the legislature, Wang Jinping, and Ma ying Wang simply – did the big Buddha thing and, you know, cross, kneeled down or sat down and crossed his hands together and said, I will have, I will do nothing about this. He could have had them tossed out of the legislature, but he didn't. And again, the backstory of this is that Ma Ying-jeou was a mainlander. You know, his family had come over from China in 1949. And he was actually, he's actually born in China, in Hong Kong, uh, apparently. But there's also a uh, there's also uh, some issues out there with his birthplace, probably because, you know, it's, it's a civil war and his family doesn't want to exactly – anyway, it's not important. <laughs> but uh, there's Ma, who's, whose family came over in 49 with the retreat, uh, with the retreat or uh, sometimes he says earlier. But mm. um, he's, he's associated with that crowd. And there's Wang Jingping, who's Taiwanese. His, his people right. have been for ages. He's from Kaohsiung in the south. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's – He's the unofficial head of the Taiwanese in the KMT at that time. Mm-hmm. And so the Southerners and the, the Taiwanese were looking at the services pack going, oh, my God, this is going to hit us hard because a lot of those guys are connected to local organized crime and connected people, right? So they, they look at the Chinese coming over here, and um, there's already uh, major gangsters who do things like bring over people from China to train them to go back and run their run their their businesses in China, right? And all these guys are in service businesses of various kinds. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of because the the international news never reports on it. Uh, it's underappreciated the, the incredible extent of, of gangster ownership and influence in mm-hmm. Taiwan. 
So, I mean, <laughs> you have a major bus line who's – major inner city bus line who's – CEO was whacked in a gangland killing a few years ago. A lot of Taiwanese even don't get this stuff. So all these people who are who have these you know connections across many different areas of local business and local organized crime, all these local legislators, many of them Taiwanese, and who looked to Wang Jinping with leadership, were like, "This services treaty is going to screw our people." Mm-hmm. And so they were not happy about it. Right. So there was like a tacit agreement that no that that they would back Wang Jingping and mm-hmm. they were happy to see the services pack slow down. Mm-hmm. And the young people occupied the legislature had, legislature had grabbed the perfect moment. This perfect moment had arrived where they could occupy the legislature and not get kicked out. And they stopped this pack basically, which had been attempted, which the KMT had attempted to force through, mm-hmm. through illegal measures because even its own people weren't supporting mm-hmm. it. Yeah, so they so, literally locked it by occupying the legislative year on March 18th, 2014. So we're coming on six years of the anniversary of that movement. And a lot, of course, then a lot of them went on into local politics. But it was important that what it did was it kind of gelled this new Taiwanese identity that had been forming since the, since the beginning of democracy and the end of martial law, but really since the end of the 1990s. The new generation is... The, the previous generation of Taiwan independence people had – independence for them meant getting rid of the KMT and its colonial state. That's what independence meant for people like Chen Sui-bian and Chen Ju and all those people, the, the president Chen Sui-bian and those guys who had come of age in the – as a uh, in the 70s and 80s. In right, the 60s, 70s, in the white terror Yeah. So those guys, for them, independence meant getting rid of the KMT. For people like you know my son's age, 20s, mm-hmm. 30s. Mm-hmm. And now, now into their 40s, those people come of age in a democratic society. And for them, independence meant getting Taiwan recognized as an independent state by the international community. So these were two different. Uh, right. So the Sunflower Movement actually really gelled that second emergence. I like to call it a post-independence mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really gelled that post-independence identity. So you saw, like I was, I've been teaching, I was teaching in college, I retired a couple of years ago, and what I saw, say, in the 90s was that when people spoke up in class, they were inevitably, uh, when they spoke up on political issues, sorry, they were inevitably blues. And you saw this mm-hmm. also in many private gatherings. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've encountered this yourself. You're sitting mm-hmm. at a table, there's a dozen people there, 10 of them are deep green and support the DPP, but the one talking about politics, while the others are nodding, is the deep blue guy. <laughs> <laughs> why why <laughs> do you think that is? Many times. Why was that? Because the, the Taiwanese were taught to be quiet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, shut up. The Don't whole talk white about terror, things. you know. Yeah. And, yeah. You could get killed. You could yeah. Get, yeah. You'd get punished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now it's just the opposite. The, the blues don't speak anymore. <laughs> And I used to see this a lot because I taught a current events class, uh-huh. and one of the things that we that we talked was uh, we talked about was the Senkaku issue, right? Uh-huh. The Diaoyi, uh-huh. the islands to the north of Taiwan right. that are right. that are Japanese, but they're right. claimed by China. Right. There's always and fishing so, disputes there. Yeah, exactly. So I taught. I would I would talk. This is the first issue I was talking about. And always after class, the first few years I taught that class, there would be a deep blue guy who would come into my office and explain to me what an idiot I was. And of course, the Senkaku <laughs> said. Had been Chinese since you know the Paleolithic, maybe even since the Cretaceous period, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and that stopped about mm. 2014 or 2015. That stopped. Interesting. And, and yeah, so it, it was. It's really been a change in the in the way in the dynamic and the way Taiwanese communicate among themselves. Right, everyone, the young, everyone under 40 is Taiwanese. 
Don Rogers, even in 2010, Don Rogers did a survey of a thousand university students and he found two that said they were Chinese. And it's very likely they were exchange students anyway from China, right? <laughs> the, the young people, even the young people who are blue, see themselves as Taiwanese. Right. So, God, we've wandered all over the place. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Well, thank you. You're such a fountain of knowledge. I really appreciate you making time to be on the podcast. All right. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, um, yeah, hope to do sure. it again sometime over some new and, and hopefully positive topic in Taiwan politics. <laughs> sure. I've been speaking with Michael Turton, a political commentator, writer, and Taipei Times columnist about China's recent ban of pineapples from Taiwan. To learn more about Michael and any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll list any related links. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Tell a friend about us. Or better yet, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.